Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll continue our study there. As we've been studying Paul's letter to this church at Corinth for a good many months, Sandy has been uh, frequent to remind us that it is a messed up church. But I have news for you. Any living church is a messed up church. The only tidy ones are the dead ones. In fact, uh, the book of Proverbs says that the, uh, the manger is clean. The trough is clean where there are no oxen. But there is much strength in many oxen. Dear friends, if you want a clean trough, don't have any oxen. If you want a tidy church, don't have any people. But if you want the strength that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and through his spirit to his people, get ready for a mess. And Corinth was a church that was alive, it was messy, it was enthusiastic, it was too enthusiastic at times. And it was a mixture of truth and error, a mixture of, of godliness and selfishness. And what do you know? The early church was not the great panacea. It's a church just like our own day, church just like the one we have right here at Second Presbyterian Church. And so we're finding that the Apostle Paul has much to say to us, even as we consider what it is that he has to say to this church. Now we've been looking at spiritual gifts, and we began that last week. And the Apostle here is teaching us about the incredible variety of ways in which the Spirit of God reaches out to His people through His people. And last week, as we got started at looking at this text from chapters 12 to 14, we saw the Apostle Paul had two main points, which was, number one, we need the gifts. All of us, to use Paul's words, somehow or other are led astray by idols. We all are tempted to doubt the goodness of God. We are all tempted to doubt his sufficiency. So we all want to supplement what he gives to us. And that's idolatry. Either to replace him or to try and supplement him, it's idolatry. And we all are subject to it. And what we need is to have constant reminders, a constant uh, barrage from the Lord himself that Jesus really is Lord, that the gospel really is true, the gospel really is good, the gospel really is beautiful. And wonderfully, through spiritual gifts, one believer to another, God comes at you from every direction, at every level, through a whole variety of means, a whole variety of words, to constantly reinforce your wavering faith and your inclination to go astray. He's constantly buttressing your faith. And so it is supposed to work. And marvelously, though, our need is great for these gifts, God's provision is greater still that the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we read in verses 4 to 6, is behind this great bestowal of gifts. As we consider this morning verses 7 to 11, we find ourselves actually in fairly controversial waters. Although I would submit to you the main points Paul's making are not controversial at all, and I tend to stay with those this morning. But as we study this text, let us seek the Lord's hand, his illumination. So won't you join me in prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you that you have not left us on our own, that you have not left us merely to imagination to figure out how to worship you, but that you've given us guidance, you've given us counsel, 
You've given us your word to lead us forth that we might engage you, that we might uh, reveal you as you would be revealed, that we might know you as you have let, us, let yourself be known. And so we ask you now to engage us with your word, that the sword would come and pierce through, that you would make known our own hearts, expose them, that they might be transformed and made more like Jesus. So come, Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us feet to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We read then from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The verses we're studying are 7 to 11, but for context, I ask you to join me uh, in reading from verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. When I was in college, out in California, we went on a short-term mission trip from our school, from our college, down to Ensenada, Mexico. I don't know how many of you have been there, but it is a very beautiful coastal city a few hours south of San Diego in Baja, California. And Ensenada, though beautiful, is like every major city in the world. That is a combination, typically, of beauty and wealth and poverty all in the same place. And a few hundred of us college students descended upon Ensenada during our Easter spring break and were working in the various impoverished villages and barrios that you find there in the city. And we did a variety of things as we do in mission trips here conducted vacation Bible school for the children during the mornings each day, and we conducted worship services each night in the church there and longed to encourage the believers as well as uh, be whatever help we could be to them in evangelism. In fact, I remember one service where our dental team had been passing through in the afternoon. The only place to set up the equipment was in the, the little church and they weren't done when the worship service started, so we all had to sing very loudly over the drill, if you can imagine that. But that's what you do on a mission trip. You, you just roll with the punches. We turned all the pews sideways and sang to the side wall because the dentists were up in the front. The last day, we um, had been with these children all week. The last day, we pulled out a box that we had been hoping to give them all week long. We had been collecting toys for months, and we finally had our day to present, to play Santa Claus, as it were, and to grant 
all these toys to these children that we had been teaching in Vacation Bible School. But if you're a parent, you'll understand what came next. While we thought there would be dancing and enthusiasm and joy over the toys, what we saw was jealousy, envy, snatching, crying, sulking, snitting, uh, you name it, we saw it. And I had two thoughts. One was, human depravity really does transcend culture, because they have the same spirit of jealousy and rivalry that is easily found in my own breast. But the other thought that was just startling, I think, for all of us, having anticipated this moment of giving them these toys as gifts, was this. How can something so good, a box of toys, all for free, give rise to something so bad as all of the squabbling, as all of the, the, the rivalry and the, and the nastiness that we saw from young children? And I want to suggest to you that Paul the Apostle is dealing with just that kind of situation here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has opened heaven. He has poured forth the victories, the, 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 the spoils of Christ's victory. Christ having been seated at God's right hand, having been given the scepter to rule and to reign, has lavished upon his people gifts. And in Corinth, instead of celebration, instead of a, a, a euphoria before God of gratefulness, they're squabbling, they're fighting, they're snitting, and they're reaching for one another. And those who have what they perceive to be the better gifts are gloating over those who got the shorter end of the stick, or so it's perceived. And so the apostle is weighing in like a good parent over a bunch of immature children, and he is saying to you, the problem is not the gifts of God. The problem are the hearts of God's people. And therein is the, is the focus of the apostle in these verses. Now, interestingly, over the last 50 years, we've seen reams of material, books and articles, both scholarly and popular, being written about these verses that we're looking at this morning. Uh, numbers of authors have tried to define these nine gifts that we read about just a moment ago, and they've done so with great precision. The problem is the apostle doesn't give you a whole lot on how to define these gifts. And I would suggest to you, therefore, be a little cautious when you read somebody's, uh, somebody's very careful distinguishing, say, between the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom. We might have some general ideas, but the fact of the matter is the Bible just doesn't make it clear. That wasn't Paul's interests. Similarly, we've got all kinds of writing about, well, how many gifts are there? One book will speak of the nine gifts flowing out of uh, this text here, verses 8 to 10. Other writers have said 17 gifts. Other writers, 18 gifts. Other writers, 19 gifts. One writer, 20 gifts. And another writer, 21 gifts. They're all counting. Interestingly, the apostle never counts. When he mentions spiritual gifts, he'll mention one group, Ephesians 4, I'll mention another group, Romans 12, still another group, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, and another group still in verses 28 to 30. Never in the same order, always scrambled. The bottom line is Paul the Apostle is not nearly as concerned about the questions we seem to be concerned about. Nor does he seem to show a whole lot of interest 
in the so-called issue of cessationism, whether or not the gifts have actually ceased beyond the apostolic generation. He just says the gifts are dispensed as the Spirit of God determines. And he's happy with that. And dear friends, I would suggest to you all of our interest so often tends to be on this text for the wrong reasons. You see, the apostle is most concerned about our hearts and how we respond to these gifts from our hearts, how we respond to fellow believers in light of these gifts, how we respond to God in light of these gifts as he is the giver. And so, so this morning, I want us to consider what the gifts of the Spirit require of our hearts as indicated to us in these verses. And I have in the time remaining four observations that I wish to make about our hearts, what is required of our hearts as recipients of the gifts of God. The first is this. I want you to see from verses 7 and 11, in fact, throughout, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of God, require a participant's heart from you and me. A participant's heart. For the Holy Spirit has put each of us on a team. Look at verse 7. To each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Verse 11, He, the Holy Spirit, gives them the gifts to each one, just as He determines. And then, of course, in the middle, those being the bookends, bookend verses, in the middle verses, verses 8 to 10, you'll see the word either one or another nine different times. The apostle is underscoring and emphasizing the fact that the gifts are being spread out broadly. And he closes it by saying, to each one is a gift given, or several gifts given. I ran into this definition of football years ago, and I think it still is applicable. This writer said, football is 22 men on a field desperately in need of rest, and 60,000 fans in the stadium desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> and he wasn't even counting the millions who were watching on TV couch potatoes to them all. The reality is we are, as a nation, increasingly becoming a gathering of spectators. It's what I tend to call the tyranny of the superstars. We, we spend far more time watching the Michael Jordans and the Tiger Woods perform their feats athletically rather than ourselves engaging in athletic enterprises. We spend more time listening to great and supreme musicians than we do ourselves singing and making music. You feel put out because you sing six verses of a hymn this morning. And yet you don't mind listening to a singer on a CD sing ten songs straight in a row, do you? Many verses to boot. The reality is we're not used to singing and so we're counting the verses going, oh for a thousand tongues to sing, how much? Interestingly, this summer, we're also finding a new phenomenon on TV. It's called reality TV. I'm sure you've heard of it with such programs as Survivor. I myself have not seen it, but I'm reading about it. It seems everywhere about a, a nation obsessed with this so-called reality TV. And the idea of it is that we're all watching in on people living out real lives. Never mind they're on fake TV sets but they're living out real lives, it's unscripted, so to speak. 
And we seem more fascinated watching them live their lives in a fake setting than we living our own lives that have been given to us by God. And dear friends, that's a spectator society. Sadly, the, what I'll call the tyranny of the superstars finds its way into the church as well. We'd rather watch the extraordinary Christians do their thing than we ourselves participate. And it would seem at times when you listen to some preach that the only Christians that really count are the great Christians. The ones that I call the Navy Seals for Jesus. You know, the, the knife in the teeth. You know, and they're the only ones that seem to count. And the ordin, ordinary garden variety Christian just doesn't seem to matter. And so we sit. And in fact, if you look at a lot of church architecture today, various modern churches set up like a theater. And you speak of it as a stage and all of the rest. And, and, and the paradigm is entertainment up front, okay, with an audience before you. Dear friends, we sing six verses of a song. We do responsive readings. We, we proclaim our creeds together because we are going to participate in affirming what it is we believe. We're going to participate in the worship of God. We're going to verbally and silently and actively worship our Lord. You see, the Holy Spirit wasn't given only to ordinary people. He was given to everybody, including the ordinary common stock. And life, especially Christian life, therefore, is not, as one guy has put it, a spectator sport. And so I'm asking you this question this morning. Are you in the bleachers or are you in the game? Are you on the bench or are you in the field? When I was in high school, my freshman year, I tried out for the uh, junior varsity basketball team. Basketball was not my forte, but it was my favorite game, nevertheless. And so I tried out for the team. It was all week after week as we went through fall practices, you see a few guys being dropped off, few guys being dropped off, and you just wondered when the coach was going to say to you, uh, don't bother coming to practice tomorrow. Well, it came down to the last day of cuts, and I got sick. And I didn't know if coach wanted me to come back or not because I wasn't there for the last day. And it turned out, though he wanted only to keep 15 players, he couldn't decide between me and another player which one to cut. So I was the 15th and a half player. I made it. The problem was there was no uniform for me. In the providence of God, our biggest player, six foot five, about 240, 250, left the team. So guess whose uniform I got? <laughs> and I assure you, I'm neither 6'5", nor 240 or 50. I've been gaining weight as a newlywed, but I'm no 250. I mean, I was nearly tucking in my number. You know, you could barely see the thing. But I was on the team, dear friends. Now, being a third teamer, you don't get in the game a whole lot. All right? You only get in when you're up by 30 points and there's 30 or 40 seconds left, you know the third team can't lose it for you then. And you knew who were the bench players because if you've ever watched a basketball game and they're all sitting on the bench, they're all leaned over, you know, with their elbows on, on their knees, right? They're all kind of hunched over this way. Well, when you put a guy in who's been sitting like that for a good hour and a half, 
He's got red stripes on his knees, okay? Because the blood is now running where it hadn't been running before. And so there were the bench guys, including yours truly, with the red stripes on the knees and tucked in numbers. But we were in the game. Dear friends, it's easy to sit back and watch superstars do their thing. But the fun is being in the game. And the marvelous invitation of God is that he has given to you gifts. He's given to you a uniform that fits far better than mine did. And he said, I want you in the game. Not as a third teamer, not as a second teamer. You're my first team. And we need a participant's heart, especially in a society that is turning increasingly to a, a passive spectatorship. The second observation that I would make to you about the quality of our hearts that is required by the gifts of the Spirit is that our hearts be servants' hearts. For you see, the Holy Spirit has made us teammates in ministry. Look at verse 7 again. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for what? The common good. What is remarkable is our own capacity to take that which is for someone else and to use it for our own self-promotion. All of us are, are extremely good at turning a gift of love into something that is somehow turns the attention right back to ourselves, are we not? Ultimately wanting somebody to look at us, look at me, even as we give a gift of love, it's the look at me that often is driving the very gift. I was working with a young uh, woman in D.C., and we were all volunteers in a ministry, and she was incredible. She was one of the most amazing persons in terms of gifts of service, gifts of discipleship, and, and, and the like. I'm always a little suspicious when somebody seems too good. Um, maybe I'm just a skeptic of the human heart, but I'm always a little suspicious when somebody seems just a little too good. And she was a good friend. And I remember we were in conversation one time about ministry. And at one point she just said this. She just came out and openly said, you know, maybe the reason I do this is I just want them to like me. She's not alone in that. How many of us, through the exercise of gifts, want to be acknowledged, want to be recognized, want to be respected, want to be liked? want to accomplish something so that we think we're somebody. She's not alone in this. And yet what the Apostle is saying is the gifts of the Spirit are not given to you so that you might gloat and say, look at me, I can do this, I can do that. Rather, the gifts of the Spirit are given so that God might love His church. It's not so much even for our good. Yes, God blesses us richly with the gospel, but the gifts of the Spirit are not given to you for your own good. They're given for someone else's good. They're not given for your honor. They're given for the glory of the church. They're not given for your happiness. They're given for the happiness and the cheer of the church. And so we need servants' hearts. We don't need gloaters' hearts, self-promoters' hearts. The gifts of the Spirit are for service. A third aspect of the heart that is required of all who would receive 
and exercise these gifts responsibly is a humble heart. For the fact of the matter is we have nothing but that which was given us. We are nothing but that which is given us. Look again at verse 7. So much is packed into this verse. The manifestation of the Spirit is given. That's how he defines gift. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then in verse 11 again, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. I would submit to you, if you look at this, at this text of ours, this paragraph, which has nine different gifts articulated as mere examples, as merely representative of the gifts of the Spirit, there's very little emphasis on the possessor of the gift. All of the emphasis is on the giver of the gift. Have you noticed that? This gift by the same Spirit. This gift by that one Spirit. This gift by the one and the same Spirit. He's the one who's working it all out. It has nothing to do with you, dear friends. It has everything to do with the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is, I think, verse 7, your best definition of spiritual gifts. What is it? It's God the Holy Spirit manifesting himself through you, through word and through deed, to bless someone else. The Spirit of God himself moving through you, through a certain activity or through a certain word. And so marvelously, if you can imagine, we're pipelines of the Holy Spirit. We're conduits of the Spirit of Christ. Or maybe to change the metaphor, we're like a prism. What's a prism do when white light hits it? The white light comes in, it's refracted by the prism, and it breaks out into that glorious array of color. All of that color was in the light to begin with. And the prism just breaks it out. And Peter puts it this way. He says that we, you know, we're conduits of God's grace which is administered, and these are Peter's words, in its various forms, in all of its bright rainbow array. The grace of God going forth through you and through me. And so here's the marvel. A person of little intellect, of average or below average intellect, can be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a manifester of the mind of Almighty God. A person who is weak and fragile in their own constitution can be one who manifests the strength and the power of an omnipotent God. A person who is impoverished in and of their own circumstances can reveal and make known the riches of God that are available in the gospel. A person who is homely, a person who, dare I say, is ugly, can reveal the beauty of God. That's the glory of it. The bottom line here is that the Holy Spirit, in all of his marvelous wonder, comes to us through the most ordinary and nondescript delivery system. Human beings, fallen human beings, messy human beings, sinful human beings. That same Holy Spirit can still run through a sinner to bless you. How about that? And dear friends, if anyone is going to get excited about his own gifts, thinking he's something great, he ought to read Numbers 22. You know, if there's any group that's going to get excited about their gifts, it's a preacher. Steve Brown used to say, a professor of mine in seminary, said, it is, 
It is a cruel thing to put a man's feet five or six feet up in the air and then tell him to be humble. Because the temptation is always to want to gloat. Numbers 22. God delivered prophetic words through a jackass. Balaam's donkey. And dear friends, if God can speak through a jackass, he really can speak through any preacher and any human being. It, preaching is not all that spectacular once you realize the vehicles God has chosen in the past to deliver his message. And so the bottom line here is for those of us who would exercise our gifts rightly, get off your high horse. You have nothing but that which was given to you by Jesus Christ and his spirit. So the gifts require a humble heart. Fourthly and finally, the gifts of the Spirit require a thankful heart. For the Holy Spirit himself has custom designed your gift mix. Verse 11, he has given these gifts to each of us just as he determines. One of the most destructive and corrosive forces in the human heart is envy. One writer has said it's the one sin that you don't even get to enjoy. Because envy makes you miserable. And yet the reality is, don't we find envy and that competitive, comparative streak in just about every facet of ordinary life? What car are you driving into the parking lot versus what others are driving in? What is your home like versus others? I'm just learning to hedge. I've never owned a home, so I'm learning to hedge with a weed eater. And dear friends, that's not my gift. I can tell you that. I mean, I might as well dig a moat. You know, I've got it. It's jagged. It's rough. But you know, I've, then I look at my next door neighbor. It is just straight down. And not only straight, it's just a perfect, it's just a perfect width and everything. I mean, that fellow and my wife says, well, they have professionals do it. Well, that doesn't bring me consolation. I, I, I want my hedge to look, I, I want my, my, my edging to look like theirs. And it spreads to everything, does it not? Comparative behavior and how we dress. If you go to one person's home for a night's meal, what happens? Typically, the wife's going to feel obligated to at least match that meal. If it was a specialty salsa, you better be prepared. Another specialty salsa salsa's coming your way. The point is we, want, we, we don't want to lose. You know what? You find the same spirit in the church as well. I wish I could pray like that guy prays. Or somebody really prays off an eloquent one. You don't want to pray your little prayer after them. You wish you had the insights at the Bible study that that person had. If you're a youth worker, all too often you're looking at other youth workers and going, do the kids like him or her more than they like me? Or again, if you're a preacher, whose sermons are better? Who gets more compliments? Who orders more tapes? How many people come to your church? An endless array of ways in which we compete with one another and are disgruntled by our own gifts or, in our own minds, lack thereof. And what the apostle gives to us here in verse 11 is the antidote to envy, which is this. 
It's the Holy Spirit himself who has designed your gift package. You have the gifts that God himself wanted you to have. You have the calling, you have the life that God wanted you to have. You have the ministry having been prepared for you by God himself. And thus, you can reveal something of Jesus Christ to a hungry world and to a hungry church that nobody else can because your gifts and your gift mix are unique to you. You want to ask me how many gifts of the Spirit there are? I would argue there are as many gifts as there are Christians. Because each one comes out different. Even if they can be generally classified in certain ways. Each one comes out of each Christian differently because the Holy Spirit has wired it up just for you. So that you are going to reveal one of those hues of the rainbow that nobody else will reveal about Jesus Christ. I close by calling your attention to Jesus. I want you to think about him in, these, in this final minute. Jesus didn't do everything, did he? Didn't write a book. He didn't endorse a book, save the Bible. He didn't travel. Sandy Wilson and our youth over in Hungary have traveled more than Jesus. His ministry never left Palestine, and he ministered for three years. Certainly didn't heal everybody. Jesus didn't do everything, but Jesus did what he was called to do. He accomplished salvation for you and for me. And then he delegated the rest of his messianic ministry, the proclamation of the word, to his disciples. Jesus didn't do it all, but he did what he was called to do. He did what he was empowered and equipped to do. No more, no less. And dear friends, God hasn't called you to be what he hasn't equipped you to be. But he has called you to be what he has equipped you to be. He's given you gifts and abilities through which the Holy Spirit would flow. And what you need is a participant's heart, not a couch potato's heart. You need a servant's heart, not a gloater's heart. You need a humble heart, not an arrogant heart. You need a grateful heart, not an ingrateful heart. Marvelously, Jesus alone died that we might have such a heart. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that while you could do your work all by yourself, nevertheless, in your great condescension, you have made us your fellow laborers, your co-laborers, your teammates, and you have invited us to participate in your great work. Oh, Father, may you take us and may you mold us and make us as those who can bring forth your message of hope, your gospel hope to this city and to the world. 
through word and through deed, through all the various ways in which you have equipped each person in this building. May you use it all to spread the light, the rainbow glory of Jesus Christ through us. We pray this, O Lord, for the glory of Jesus, of which he is due. And we ask it in his name. Amen.